is life over at Ricky Mason Academy? <laughs> no, listen, everything's everything's on fire. It's on fire. I uh, on the court today at six and got done at ten and came home, took a shower, and ready to dive in with you and talk about a lot of good stuff. Yeah, is it on fire because it's so hot, or is it just generally lots to do? It's always on. It's always hot, but. I've been outside for so long, I'm like a lizard. So I'm kind of used to the heat. So it doesn't bother me, but no, we have, uh, you know, the Battle of Boca every weekend. We have a tournament every weekend. So that's 52 tournaments. There's like 150 people in the tournament. Um, so that's this $10,000 prize money. Then there's a $25,000 UTR event going on at the same time. And then there was 70 kids for the academy. Then last week we had 50 visit from Nadal uh, for uh, a junior battle of Boca. So there's always stuff popping all the time. Uh, but that's why I like it because activity breeds activity. Do you get any time off or you just keep going hundred percent? Yeah. Like right now I got time off. I'm off the court. I took a shower. I got a hoodie on. I'm in the air conditioning. My daughter's here, my cat's here. So this is like time off. But, uh, then tomorrow I got to do something, uh, bright and early with, uh, Fox and friends about Wimbledon. And then I got about six hours of lessons and we got to move our podcast that I have with Dave Meltzer, Game Set Life. Uh, we got Chris Gardner on there, Pursuit of Happiness. What an amazing guy tomorrow afternoon. So it's always busy, but uh, that's what that's the way I like it. Yeah, same here. I actually spent two and a half hours in the sun as well before. So and uh, similar in that sense, you know, I think it's a, the tennis bug is, is tough. So what do you see for, for Wimbledon now? Like how do you, does your life get extra busy because people want to have you comment on things? Yeah, you know. Obviously, it's a little bit more whenever there's a grand slam in the oven. You know, a lot of people, you know, reach out, whether it be maybe, you know, a podcast or just uh, media in general, but a little bit more, you know, TV. So and then there's just a lot of stories done because, you know, I do have a little bit better feel than most about evaluating talent and having a feel for this type of stuff. You know, especially obviously with younger kids I had back in the day and where they become. But even with Alcarez and Horta and some of these people I said years ago that were going to be the real deal. And a lot of this plays out. So I think the credibility of not just giving an opinion, there's a little more meat on the bone. But yeah, from uh, England, you know, to the United States, to Australia, uh, there's stuff going everywhere. And if I have the time, I like to help everybody out. That's great. That's great. I like that that uh, attitude. Who do you think would win on the men's and the women's side? Like, just throw first, it out there. Yeah. Well, first off, you got to go with Djokovic. He's he's not going anywhere. Listen, he's the rubber band man. You know, he moves on grass. Listen, he hasn't lost on grass in six years. You know, he has ten. Uh, he has twenty-three Grand Slams in his pocket already. Ten Australian. You know, seven Wimbledon, three French, three U.S. Open, you know, what, 94 singles titles, 389 weeks. He was like, he's been number one, seven different years. Okay. He's only lost a few matches since 2014 at Wimbledon. So you got to, you just got to go with him, especially three out of five. But as you know, grass can almost be a different sport. You get someone that's has a big serve. But they're getting it in. That's important. You got to get it in. A lot of guys are the big serve at the right time. You win a few breakers. Anybody can beat anybody. But I would go with the Joker, uh, number one. Uh, a month ago, I had Sinner in there. I love how he moves on grass. 
He's authoritative. He went five sets with Joker before. I kind of like it, even though his serve's not super big. I think that he could do damage once he gets into the tournament. And to tell you the truth, who's kind of blown me away, or I would have been out in front of this a little bit more, is Alcarez. I've never seen a pro ever in my life play on clay for five weeks. And then I watched him that first match, almost lose to a lucky loser, all right? And make so many adjustments. He's closer to the baseline. He's returning serve from a different position. He's changing the tactics. Uh, there's not quite as many drop shots, but there's more drop volleys. You know, he's playing more like Agassi, take it on the rise, give you a surprise. It's one thing to modify and adjust your tactics. It's another thing to be able to do it. And it's another thing to deliver the goods. I mean, this guy, it blew me away. It really did. I never saw that. So listen, he's dangerous because he knows now grass is becoming his best friend again. You know, where before I, I thought he didn't move, even though he's the best mover I've ever seen. Once he starts running, you know, he's on turbo. But the movement on hard court and clay is very different than grass. You got to be a little more nimble. You got to stop a little different. But he's kind of figured that out. So he's dangerous. He's on a collision course with Rune, I think, in the quarters. But everybody has to get there. Uh, Corda is my dark horse. I love his game. Backhand, money in the bank. Depends which bank you got it in. His backhand's money in the bank. The guy can bring you in with short chips. He can volley better than any of the Americans. His forehand's kind of like Federer, a tight spin. You know, it's not a heavy spin, but it's a tight spin. Mentally, I like his calmness. His serve's going to get better. Great pedigree. Both his parents played pro tennis. So he would be one that I, I, I definitely think's in the mix. You know, so those would be the ones I'd be on the lookout for. But you know as well as I do, at Wimbledon, Anything can happen, but you got to go with Djokovic. I mean, look what the guy has done. All right. So now all that being said, over to the women, it's a little different. You know, I see Iga, in my opinion, not the favorite. I think her forehand is a little dodgy, kind of like Coco on the grass. I think you can get into it more. What I mean by get into it, you, you can win more for free on that side or get short balls. And when your opponent, uh, these other gals feel that way, they feel they can beat you. They have a chance. We're on clay. I mean, she's like Hingis on steroids. I mean, she just finds angles and breaks you down, you know? So I don't, I, but listen, you win 35 in a row or 37 in a row at anything, marbles, checkers, you know, you got something between the ear and tennis is a game of inches from ear to ear. So you don't counter out but she's more vulnerable on grass. So I would go with Rabakina, biggest serve on the tour. She gets it in, most aces, but she's had, you know, a little bit of a viral thing going on. The same with Iga. So they haven't had the best maybe preparation. I would throw Sabalinka in there because of the firepower, but she doesn't defend as well. So she can hurt you more, but you can hurt her more because she doesn't have as much time. So that kind of cuts both ways. I'm, I'm looking at Carolina uh, Muchkova. Is that how you pronounce the last name? Finals of French. I love her game. She can rip it, dip it, flip it, chip it. You know, 
Uh, she and I love her attitude. She goes, I love grass. She's been injured, so she hasn't been heard of a lot. I love her game. She reminds me of Barty. You know, she can do a lot of different things. And on grass, she can make you uncomfortable, and that makes her comfortable. Now, also, Tavitova, she won this thing seven years ago. She hits very hard and flat, okay? She can hurt you. And she just won, I think, Eastbourne or Queens or whatever. So she could do damage also. But those would be the ones I'm on the lookout for. You know, but we got a blockbuster first-round match between Coco Goff and Sonia Kennan, uh, one of my old students. You never count out Sonia. You never know what's going to happen there. So that's going to be a tough first-round match. But once again, I think this year's Wimbledon, with all the backdrop with the women, wide open. Yeah, it definitely look, uh, looks that way with the, the men's being pretty much centered around Djokovic and Alcaraz. I wanted to ask you, um, maybe you saw the, like, the semifinal between them in the French Open. Uh, what happened with Alcaraz there in the in this, like, end of second set, beginning of third set when he had what looked like cramps? But it, it was, I mean, for most people, it seems to be the most alarming thing with Alcaraz that his body kind of breaks down more than anything else because he seems to get everything else right pretty much. Well, I think you and I talked about it. If not, I probably talked about it with a hundred other people. The only thing that's going to stop this guy is injury. You know, he moves so violent. You know, he's an acrobat. He's a gymnast. There's a lot going on there. You know, then you got to throw in the diet and the, pre you know, it's going to be more that, in my opinion, because he's checked every other box. Okay. And then when you throw in the mental stress of a grand slam in the moment, that can bring on cramps, you know, how pressure can affect things like that. So that's something they're going to have to get their hands around. Um, but the injuries uh, are going to be a big thing because it's almost like Zion Williamson. I don't know if you follow the NBA. I mean, a guy is a freak of nature. No one that big, strong, quick and fast that can jump that high. But it cuts the other way because he's always injured because his body can't handle it. I know it's a different animal and a different sport, but there's common threads there. And so I think he has to be careful with that. Uh, but at the end of the day, I've never seen, the world has never seen anything like Carlos Alcaraz. I've done this a long time. I've seen players, you know, I've told this to many people. He's a combination of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and Agassi. He's all wrapped in one, generational talent, okay? He can do it all. And the wild card, as I tell people, he's, he's a Broadway performer. You know, he'll do a 20-ball rally, miss, and smile at you. I mean, the guy loves pressure. You know, he's had it all thrown upon him by people like me and you. Everybody's anointing him, you know, where this can go. Uh, we're not going to know maybe 10, 15 years from now where this is heading. But the, the, guy, the guy's amazing. And what I really love about it, he's a great role model for children. He's a great role model as a human being. So he's checking a lot of boxes and he's not only changing the way the other pros have to play because they're adding more tools to their toolbox. Let's face it. You've never seen more drop shots in the last two months than you have in your whole career. You know, everybody sprinkle it in the drop shot. It's okay to do it where before, if you missed it, what are you doing? Your knucklehead. Why are you trying that shot? Now it's like on the menu. It's a copycat thing. He's the leader in the clubhouse. But he's transforming the way people teach the game. And that's usually the way the world goes. If you're the king of the mountain, okay, 
people just want to follow that. But this this guy's unbelievable. He's only 20, and the best is yet to come. Yeah, I agree. Now, let's hope he stays healthy. When it comes to the American players, you mentioned Korda, uh, which I also believe is one of the like fantastic mover and efficient mover. Uh, but there's also Tiafo, for example, and a bunch of other players. Besides Korda, do you see anyone can be a threat to actually go deep into the draw or, or maybe hurt Djokovic or, or make an upset somewhere? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, Francis Tiafo, listen, he believes now. And when you believe, you're, there's more likelihood you will achieve. You know, he's in the top 10. He wants to stay there. He's always been a great athlete. You know, he's been pretty solid off the ground. He kind of has a little bit of a shake on the forehand. It's a weapon, but it can also be a little bit of a liability. He can volley, he can chip it. So there's versatility there, but now the mental part, it's taken a while to get there. So yeah, listen, the way the draw, draw breaks, he can win a slam or two. He can make a deep run. The same with Taylor Fritz. I don't know if he's as good on grass, but he's rock solid with the serve, the ground strokes. So he's not going anywhere either. So those are the Americans that, you know, I really like. You know, Tommy Paul's a great athlete. He can do some damage. But Francis and Fritz could go, you know, as far as the draw will let them. But listen, Corda, in my opinion, is the most talented. Then it's a matter what you do with the talent. And if you can exploit the talent, like an Alcaraz, Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, then you're going to contend for Grand Slams. And I think Korda will win many. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Do you think any there's any chance that Djokovic might stumble in some way? What do you think is his like biggest pitfall? Because it looks like it's kind of open sailing road, at least, you know, until maybe Alcaraz, for example. If Alcaraz gets there. No, you know, I think the, the, the biggest thing, it's someone's style a game. You know, the first thing you got to do is you got to get into the Joker's head. Easier said than done. You know what I mean? Because, you know, he hits quality off of quality where the rest of the world might have to chip it or lob it. He can counter punch and deliver the goods back even better. And Alcarez does that too. They're a different breed. Alcarez is even another level up. I think someone with a big serve, if they can stay close, and luckily grab a breaker and then maybe grab another one. Okay. And there's a, I know that's a lot to happen. Anything can happen, but it's going to take someone with a big serve to win free points. You know what I mean? And not really play as much the actual game of tennis, but one and done or, you know, one ball and bang, you know, because the longer the rallies go on, it's, I mean, Djokovic is a machine. You know what I mean? And another thing, since it's five sets for someone to beat him, you know, three out of five, they got to get a lot of free stuff. And that's why I keep going back to the serve. A lot of big servers out there, but unfortunately, they don't get it in at the right time. Yeah, exactly. It's always the, the mental part of actually hitting the best serve at the, the most critical moment. Absolutely. Like in, yeah. And I, I don't think there's been many better tiebreak players than Novak, for example, and looking at his stats. And your opponent knows that, you know, you work and work and work. Now it's the moment of truth. And you're playing, in my opinion, the GOAT from Serbia on Mount Rushmore. Goats like mountains, so he's on Mount Rushmore, in my opinion. And your opponent knows that. You know what I mean? Because you went three all, four all, now tiebreaker. Now all of a sudden it's like moment of truth. You know what I'm saying? So that's more pressure on the other guy to deliver. 
listen, we've seen people step up, you know, even though long ago he did retire with the shoulder or elbow problem with Burdich. And then Sam Curry, I think back in the day, played amazing and beat him. But listen, the guy hasn't lost in six years at Wimbledon. I mean, that alone should make you feel like Batman, Superman, and Aquaman all wrapped in one. So listen, uh, the mental part, I think his toughest opponent is the guy he looks at in the mirror. Yeah, and he seems to be able to beat him quite a lot. Like, And also the, the, the issue for Novak has always been um, you know, battling, like being loved, I guess, as much as Roger and Rafa. And he seems to be dealing with it pretty well when he's under like some, you know, maybe some booing from the crowd and stuff. Where do you think that comes from? Like, do you think he will ever get the same kind of credit as, as Roger and Rafa? And do you think he uses that as fuel? First off, I love this question. That's, a, that's an awesome question. First off, everybody's going to love Federer because the guy looked the best, okay? And he made it look easy. And in sports, when you make it look easy and you're a champion and one of the greatest ever, people love that, okay? They, they just love that. And it never looked like he was sweating. They like that even more, you know? That's a true artist. So, and his demeanor overall, you know, you know, and so that touched differently with the media and fans in general. So that's Federer. Nadal, people love the workmanship, you know, just the the lunch pail mentality, the grinder, the machine attitude, you know. And once again, he was more uh, welcoming. You know, he'd welcome people a little bit more. So the Joker, listen, he took a negative. And like you just said, maybe turned all this into positive. You know, it made him try harder, made him dig deeper. Listen, he's dealt with more than anybody. He harpooned a ball boy at the US Open a while back. He could add another slam, in my opinion, okay? He gets kicked out of Australia and he's a defending champion. And as I said, he's won 10 of those things, okay? He didn't get to play a few other grand slams. He could be sitting here with 26 grand slams. Instead of saying, Oh, let's just retire or let's go to the beach. He's used that to fuel the fire. But you know what? That doesn't start yesterday. That doesn't start a year ago. That was long ago in the wiring, having dreams, mental visualization, a lot of mental training that he's probably not going to elaborate with the public about how he sees it, believes it, feels it in his mind before it happens. And through negativity, and through failure, you become more successful if you use it the right way. A lot of people, they exit stage left. You know, that's why you see, unfortunately, a lot of the women, they go up and down very quickly. You know, they, Djokovic is bulletproof. And I think he's went up another level with respectability because of the stuff I just mentioned. And he won the French, okay? And he has 23 grand slams. And he's not done yet. So I think the last chapter is to be written. And the way he answered the question, are you the greatest of all time now? You know, and he gave so much respect. He goes, that's for other people to talk about. I think it's disrespectful. Many champions before me that gave me this opportunity. Each generation is different. I'll leave that up to other people. So it gave you a behind the scenes look about him as a person, 
a, a father and just an overall great human being. Yeah, and if he wins Wimbledon, I guess he has the chance to win like a calendar slam in the, at the US Open again, which he almost did some years back, right? Yeah, no, listen. Well, first off, if he wins Wimbledon, even though I think he is already, he will be the greatest grass court player of all time. And he doesn't have the biggest serve of all time. And he doesn't have one of the best slice of all time. Or he doesn't have the greatest volley, you know, or one of the best. Okay? He's nimble. It's footwork. It's his mind. I just think it shows you he might be the most complete player of all time because it's not even about the surface as much as it is about him and his capability. But, yeah, if he wins, okay, Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, going for the Grand Slam, must-see TV, okay, it will be, last year it was a Serena show, okay, this will be uh, the, the Novak show like no other. But instead of getting ahead of ourselves, he has a lot of work to do. I think it's going to be tough at Wimbledon because it's so unpredictable and no one's just going to give him the trophy. Yeah, that's true. You always have to fight it out, and then yeah. you know the first rounds can be treacherous. You know, if you're uh, if you're the favorite, Absolutely. and he's always shown a, a willingness in his career to look for like different solutions, like the dieting, you know, going vegan or whatever, gluten free, everything he's trying, hyperbaric chambers, all that stuff. And uh, do you think that's uh, kind of an inspiration for uh, you know other players to always go that extra mile, like whether it's mental work or physical stuff that's happening on the side of the court? Absolutely. Listen, the way you get better is to study people better than you. The way you get smarter is to be around smarter people than you. I mean, this guy's going to go down as the greatest male tennis player ever to hold a racket. Everybody should, took, should take a page or two out of his playbook. Okay, because I remember when he first came on the tour. And remember, he's won a lot of these slams since 2007. I mean, I think Federer had 13 by then or something. So, you know, he's done a lot in a shorter period of time. So everything he's done from changing the diet, you know, to everything that you just mentioned, and we don't even know half this stuff. Listen, this makes you stronger. He has that Kobe Bryant mentality, the Mamba mentality. You know what I mean? Who knows? The guy probably get. he might get up earlier than I do. I don't know. He probably gets up. You don't know what he does. He's so mentally strong. It's one thing to say it, but he probably does it Monday through Sunday. And it's the way he's wired. And if you have that, the takeaway is about one thing. You handle pressure better. Okay. You're all about the competition. He's not focused on I'm seated number one. I could do this or that. Listen, you don't see him choke a lot. You don't see him, you know, check out a lot. And everybody's human. Everybody chokes and get nervous. He just does it like Nadal and Federer, less than the rest of the world. Yeah, and another player, well, you mentioned Iga, which I agree with you on, on the reading that her very spinny-oriented game um, that works so well, for example, on clay courts might not be as natural for the, for the grass court. But one of her strengths seems to be the mental power. When you work with players, like, is that something you focus extra on these days over maybe 10 years ago? Well, first off, I've always worked on that. Okay, to me, that's been the leader in the clubhouse. I think anybody watching this, the number one goal of any coach, okay, forget biomechanics or the technical part or whatever. It's to teach the player to become the best competitor 
they can become. Anybody, anytime, anywhere, run for every ball, no excuses. Your, your job description is run, sweat, and shut up. You know, that's kind of your description. And you got to get people to buy into that. Because when that's the main focus, like Venus had, and Serena, and Roddy, and Kennan, Sharapova, when you're all about the competition, like I talked about Novak, you handle pressure better. You're not caught, because everything's going to change around you like it has with Emma. Everything changed around her. But it's still tennis and a court and a ball, and you're there to knock someone out. Everything changed around you, but you didn't change. You're still competing. You might have more money, but you're still competing. So, yeah, the mental part. You got 20 seconds to make it happen like 20 years ago to forget. I tell everybody, you got to remember to forget. That confuses a lot of people. I say you got to remember to forget. Uh, they usually forget to remember what I said. So what I mean by that, that's the hardest thing in singles, individual sport. That's why you see people excel more at doubles. You got a therapist on the court. You miss a shot. Instead of going whatever, that emotion leaves because you're going to give a high five and hugging someone. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. different. The mental part is the key. That's why I took a chance on Venus and Serena. That's why I said Kennan, the scariest little creature, even at six years old, I, I, that was already there. That doesn't mean you're going to be a great player. I saw it in Sharapova at 11. She was in a bubble. I saw that in Capriotti. It wasn't the great fundamentals by the late, great Jimmy Everett. Uh, it's not on the outside. I'm not going, listen, I have so many kids here that, that can crush a forehand and a backhand and have an amazing serve. And they're a better athlete than the other guy. And they lose 6-2, 6-2. <laughs> you know, so the mental part's the most important thing because the other stuff you can teach. The mental part also you can get later as you mature because your brain isn't developed at 9, 10, 11, 12. You can't process. Everybody's wired different. It's a little bit environmental. It seems like the Eastern Europeans are, you know, a little rougher and tougher and can take a punch more at a younger age. But I don't get into that. But that's what I look for. If that if that's kind of out of the way, boy, that's a that's a big thing you don't have to worry about. Uh, but you can get that later, and I've seen that with a lot of kids. Do you think that generally kids and, and players growing up in these days are softer than they were maybe 20, 15, 10 even years ago? Do you think the society makes them softer? Yeah, 100%. Uh, and unfortunately, it's not their fault. It's like if someone comes to the academy and they're 15 minutes late and the coaches keep telling them, hey, you're, you're late. I always tell people, if you're late, you'll never be great. You know, that's what I keep telling them. I go, I told the coaches, go talk to the parent. They didn't drive them here, you know, but they're always late. I want you to be consistent, but not consistently late or wrong. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it's the parents. You can't have your kid rough and tough and competitive, you know, and then you know, yell at them and they didn't do something good. And then you go to the mall and spend $500 on it. It doesn't work that way. You know what I mean? It's not the real world. And I, the, my experience has been when I've dealt with parents and they played in the NBA or National Hockey League or Major League Baseball or NFL or the Olympics. Okay. I've had so many high level parents that were crazy successful and they, their kids played. It was much easier for me to leapfrog and get down to business because they 
got it a little bit more. If the parents have never played sports or they did dabble a little, it's tougher. But even those people, they want to do what's best for their kids. Listen, I get it. Everybody does stuff out of love. But sometimes by pampering, you know, or baby, okay, you're creating a giant marshmallow, you know? And this, you got to be hungry. Listen, you got to be hungry. Even what I do, I'm hungry, okay? Not because we're doing this podcast at lunchtime here in Florida. I'm just, you got to be hungry. There's too many other people that want it. You got to be hungry. Now, you can have the other stuff like a Pagula. I mean, father owns the Buffalo Bills. They're a billionaire. It's top five in the world. So she kind of breaks that norm, what I said, but I'm generalizing. Absolutely. Kids are stuff, uh, but the parents don't understand. And what I do, I try to educate the parents. I give a lot of speeches. I talk to the kids and the parent, you know, but they want my advice. They take a lot of it because I'm probably more of a life coach, just as much as a tennis coach, but they agree. They understand. They say they're going to do it. And the next day they do exactly what they want to do because you're not the parent. And when they go home that night and the door closed at the dinner table, they're there and you're still on the tennis court. You mentioned Emma and Raducanu before. And I think like one of the things that, that happened with her, she did really well, obviously, and, uh, and broke through with like a huge bang. And then she hasn't really delivered so far as, as of yet. And she has changed a lot of coaches. Uh, where do you think that issue is? And do you see like a, a bright future for her? Or do you think like that was like a one hit wonder thing? First off, I love the question. Okay, I've answered this many, many times. Listen, you don't go through qualifying at a Grand Slam and win a Grand Slam and not drop a set. Okay, if there's not something special mentally between the ears. That's number one. Biomechanically, there's no flaws on the forehand or backhand or serve, okay? So there, there's no little speed bump there. Like maybe I, I, I explained with uh, Coco on the forehand, there's a little bump there. Yeah, so yeah. the technical part is there and she can control the center of the court. She can take away time. She understands the geometry of the court. She was taught very well, okay? I have no doubt. Okay, well, let me back up. So everything changed around her in the blink of an eye. Okay, so whatever happened, I don't know. I don't know her. I did reach out to her agent to try to get involved with the team. I actually talked to the guy at IMG. So I could help her mentally, besides strategically, because it reminds me a lot, okay, of one of my favorite students of all time, okay, like my own daughter, Jennifer Capriotti. Okay, Jennifer at age 12, won the national 18s. As a 12 year old, can't make that up. A record since 1988 that still stands today. At 14, uh, the generator was top 10 in the world. Big contract, the next Chris Ever, great American, and as you know, hit a speed bump, everybody, it was magnified in the movie, it wasn't like that, goes off the tour, okay? You don't lose the game, you don't lose the talent, you lose confidence, you lose fitness. Nobody believed in this kid except Stefano Capriotti, the dad, 
Denise Capriotti, the mom, and Rick Macy, even though I wasn't in the picture then, okay? She came back, and I told her why she could come back, okay? Because you don't lose those qualities. Magic. She was magic. Greatest junior player ever to pick up a racket here in the United States. She not only came back, not 50, 20, 10. She came back to number one, three grand slams, an Olympic gold, huge contract from Fila. Now, you talk about a movie. You talk about, you know, the comeback kid. That's Jennifer Capriotti. You talk about the comeback kid in a movie. Now, relating that to Emma, you know, you know, Jennifer was doing lotion commercials and all these things as a teenager about skin products, and she's done pimples, you know. So at the end of the day, her whole world changed, and that's not the reason with Jennifer. So listen, Emma's young. I'd love to get involved in the project. Okay, I don't travel. Okay, I can't travel. Maybe I could go to a Grand Slam. I got to run a business. I don't need a job, okay? Uh, but, you know, to help her or Coco, like I do many other pros, okay, I could help her so much. But I need to know what's in her head. I need to know what's going on with the parents. I need to know everything that's going on because you don't lose the other stuff. Who knows? It, listen, if you're not all in, you're all out. Too many people want to take your place. If you're not going to die to win every point or you're just playing for the money because you need sponsors or whatever, it's not going to work. So that's why I would have to know what's going on in her head. But I think she can come back and be one of the best players in the world. And I think she can win Grand Slams. So I think the parent might be an issue for, for many players. And is it something you encounter a lot, like that the parent plays a huge role? And we're, we're not talking only about juniors here, but there, there are a few players on the ATP and WTA Tour that still have their parents with them very closely in the team as the main coach or as like a side coach. Yeah, you know, touch both ways. It can be a positive. It can be a negative. It's hard to comics. I don't know. Each dynamic is different. You know what I'm saying? Each dynamic is different. But if I back the truck up, that's another thing. Even though everybody might look at Richard Williams, you know, as a madman or, you know, the most stubborn guy ever, I, I love the guy. Listen, we were cut from the same cloth because it was all about getting better. It was all about competing. He got it. You know, he was old school. He loved distraction. He loved people cheating his kids. He didn't need to have new balls. He loved problems. Okay, and to be great, like Venus Serena said, Rick, we are brainwashed to be number one. I mean, you got to have other attributes. That's why I love the guy. It cut through all the insanity or the forest fires I maybe had to put out that he would say. But yeah, the parents, they, they mean well. And when the kid does well, the parent feels, oh, it's a lot because of me. Because let's face it, everybody likes acknowledgement, a pat on the back. Everybody wants credit. I get it. But... Sometimes you got to let them figure it out on their own. Some of the best coaching, don't say anything. Keep your mouth shut. Let them do it. Don't carry their bag. Don't fill up their water. Don't put ice in it. I mean, listen, you saw that in King Richard. Venus picked up that bag in the locker room after she lost when Richard had it. That's a real thing that happened. Listen, I think the parents mean well, but remember, they never really develop a player. They have a very limited understanding of the technical part of the game, like, you know, maybe a lot of travel coaches or biomechanics. 
they could be good motivators or they might help a little bit with scouting and managing, you know, and being a support system. And that's a big piece to anybody's puzzle, whether it be a junior or a pro career. But it's much more than that. And that's why I might get involved with Coco to do reconstructive on the forehand and show her the ATP forehand if she wants to. But that doesn't mean it can be done. But if she wants to, I can do it. So at least the dad. That's why I really like Corey Goff, even though he's kind of the coach. Okay. He knows his daughter could do better. And it's a technical thing. Because listen, many people have helped her the last six, seven years. But here we are talking and there's still a little biomechanical flaw on the forehand. He doesn't want number six in the world. He wants number one and dominate. So yeah, the parent can be a positive. And a lot of times you're so close, you, you want that. The, the, the player might want that. But eventually, when you do it on your own, everybody list has to understand this. When you do things on your own, for better or for worse, your head's going to get stronger. How important do you think it is to have <clears throat> more influences? Just like, for example, if you had the same coach for 15 years or your whole career growing up, do you think it's, it's at some point you need to bring in extra eyes to your team? Well, first off, I, I guess it depends on, to some degree, the results. You know, how they're doing. Are you improving? Okay. Uh, are, you, are you getting better just because you're a great athlete and you can run and fight and, you know, you're mentally strong? Are you getting better? Are your weaknesses getting solidified? You know what I mean? So I think it's good to have that stabilization there. Okay. But listen, nobody knows everything. Even if I do this with Coco, you know, I might bring my partner, Dr. Brian Gordon in just to get in high speed video and we would do this so I could make it a slam dunk because he has his, you know, he has a PhD in biomechanics. I can explain it maybe a little better, but to cross every T and dot every I, but that's just the way I am. So to answer your question, I think it's good to have another set of eyes, but then again, too many cooks in the kitchen can spoil the food. So you got to be careful of that one. And I know, you know, it seems like uh, someone like uh, Patrick Moranoglu, you know, a lot of times, you know, he's there to help. He has a facility or whatever and can motivate, educate, whatever. And that's all good to have another set of eyes. But I think it really depends on the player and their comfort level. Okay. If they've had a coach for a long, long time, if they want that to continue. So I know some people... They've had success. They got rid of the coach. And I know how some people, they've had the same coach, but they do need another set of eyes. But then again, all that is is another set of eyes. Maybe the eyes could be crossed. You know, who knows? The, the eyes, this sets another set of eyes. It has to be the right set of eyes. And that's in the eye of the beholder. You see some players that be more open to that. Like, I mean, Novak did bring in Ivanisevic, for example. He's brought in some other coaches over the years. Agassi for uh, Federer changed a little bit. Nadal has been pretty steady. Um, a guy like Stefano Tsitsipas, who I've helped a bit with with rackets and strings lately. Um, do you have any advice in, in his case or any thoughts around his game to, to improve or in grass results or in general? He's always going to be in the top 10. Uh, the problem you got now, you got new guys getting better. They haven't reached anywhere near their potential in, you know, an Alcarez, Center, Rude, Corda, Medvedev is going to still be around. And then you got obviously Joker. So, but I think he's always good enough to be in the top 10. 
I think he's going to have to sprinkle in a little bit more of the volley, okay? He's going to have to take a little bit more chances. So he's dictating the play a little bit more, changes court positioning. He has to make modifications and adaptations to his game if he wants to contend for a grand slam, okay? Play a little easier, hard maybe, okay? Grass court, I don't see it, but, you know, he checks enough boxes that he's always going to be, you know, one of those guys because you got to beat him. Seems like a pretty good competitor, but he got, has to add a few wrinkles to his game, and if he does that and he uses it, um, you know, he can be right in there with all of them. A lot of times with the grass, you know, it, this is where uh, AI, you know, uh, yeah. with the the with the the commentating or even you know with the uh, website or the app, it can it's going to show you an anomalies. You know, I don't think like Casper Rude, who I taught his dad Christian back in the day, like on a hard court or clay court, his backhand's okay. But I think on a grass court because of the grip. I think his backhand can break down much easier where most people aren't going to even understand probably what I just said, because he has a great forehand His serve when it goes in, it's good. He's a good mover, but he doesn't even like grass. So the mindset has to change. You got to love grass. If you don't love grass, you have no chance. And I don't even know if CC Paul, I don't know if he likes or loves grass. So it starts with the right attitude. It has to be your best friend. If not, it's the end. So that would be my sermon, you know, about, about grass to any player. Yeah, I think that's great, uh, great uh, thoughts. I think you have to really embrace it, even if you hate it at first. I mean, we had Medvedev on the clay. He was complaining so much, but then suddenly something clicked in him and uh, he had some great results, even on yeah. clay. Absolutely. I mean, your your wisdom is uh, is ever shining. I, I like uh, talking tennis uh, with you because you, you always have a, a good take and also a nice soundbite. Always. Uh, did you uh, did you always have this good marketing ability of, of um, capturing a phrase? No. Well, well, first off, thanks. You know, basically, what it's been. You know, I've been on a court since age 22, and I've probably been on a court more than anybody. You know, and how you say it, why to say it, when to say it and how to connect, uh, that's probably why I still do what I'm doing, you know, 45, 50 hours a week uh, of teaching. And now that, you know, done obviously a lot of TV and interviews and podcasts, people like yourself, you can you can kind of see, I, I'm saying a lot of the same things, but in a different way with a different spin and a different set of eyes. Yeah, for sure. And that's very refreshing. I yeah. had a question also about the, uh, um player close to your heart, Venus, she's, she's going to play Wimbledon, right? So she's been actually playing pretty well of late. Yeah. I mean, can you believe it? Age 43, <laughs> uh, BW. No, listen, BW. She is like my daughter. You know, I love BW. Uh, just talked to Richard yesterday. Uh, listen, it goes to show you and everybody needs to understand this. You know, we always make excuses. Oh, I need to play matches. I need more competition. Hey, and that's it. You and I both know that's a legitimate excuse for anybody. Okay. She's so good mentally. And she has that unbelievable fiber of Compton Street Fight. And she was injured at the Australian. And she hasn't played at all. Really no matches. She played one. 
lost to a girl who never won a WTA match, okay? And then she had Ostapenko on the ropes. Listen, you can't make this up. I just think that alone, you know, brought people back in time, memory lane, how good the great Venus was, you know, seven Grand Slams, five Wimbledons, you know, she, remember, she beat Serena more than anybody. She beat her 12 times out of 31. So it just goes to show you that she's such a unique player mentally. Grass kind of makes you go forward. She gets more for free out of her serve. You know, she loves playing on grass. I'm sitting here in my office, right up on the wall. There's an article from Angela Buxton in 1992 at Greenleaf Resort, because Venus and I used to practice two hours a day on grass, but it wasn't so much to prepare for Wimbledon. That was way down the road. It was a short in the backswing as a developmental tool, you know, get up to the ball quicker, bend lower, a good volley would be great, a bad volley would be good. And she loved playing on grass, but I use it as a developmental tool. But there's an article right here in my office, I can't make this up. I said, listen, someday this little girl from Compton is going to win five Wimbledons. All right. That might have been my best prediction of my life because here yeah, we are pretty- all these years, all these years later and VW won five Wimbledons. So listen, what she did has to show people how unique both her and Serena were mentally to be doing this for so long. And she hadn't played any matches or tournaments and to be that competitive. And if you back the truck up to last year's U.S. Open, Serena, all through the summer, didn't do a whole lot. She got on that stage, won her first round match. Okay, second round, must-see TV, packed house, Serena's farewell, you know, Kavantava or whatever you pronounce her name, two in the world, you know, Serena uh, takes her out. That people just don't understand the mental part of these two girls is very different than anybody's picked up a racket. And that's why in 1991, I took such a big financial risk. I just saw something very, very unique and bizarre under the hood. And all these years later, I haven't seen that depth of competitiveness in two young girls in my life. Yeah, that's no, uh, amazing. And it's so uh, uh, nice to see that she loves playing tennis. I mean, she doesn't need yeah. the, the money. So she's playing because she loves the sport. And at 43, she's still going I'm, strong. That's I'm, impressive. I'm glad you brought that up. I should have mentioned that first because, you know, she she just loves to play. She loves the competition. If Serena wasn't, you know, having a baby, she might be playing doubles with BW uh, at Wimbledon. So, yeah, they just love to play. Listen, Venus turned pro at 14. Serena at 16, and look, Venus is still playing. <laughs> that that alone uh, just shows what a special young lady she is. It's heartwarming to see, especially that love for for the for the game. And I wish her all the best. She plays Svitolina in the first round, so uh, it's a tough but not impossible encounter for sure. Uh, talking about the, a Ukrainian player, you have a Ukrainian girl. How's it going for her? We talked about her last time. It was a, a strong talent that you're you're helping out. Yeah, you know, a few months ago, she went to Europe because she wants to play. She's going to play six tournaments. Uh, she's won three out of four and the 12 Whoa. and under because, uh, you know, she's won three out of four. Uh, I 
connect with her almost every day. I look at video. I'm making sure the technical stays in track because we did reconstructive surgery on her serve, the backhand, the forehand. Anybody that saw her before and now, even though she's a great little athlete and competitor, they cannot believe the difference in how she tries to play and technically how she hits the ball. They're like shocked. But she was with me three months every day. So this, you know, the cards you're dealt at a young age, for better or worse, you could be dealt with forever. So she's doing great. Uh, she wants to play six tournaments so she can uh, qualify for that big junior tournament in France uh, in February or whatever. Um, and then the focus will be more back to development and, you know, just keep building your game. But she's on fire. She's doing great. Uh, I, I, I love I love everything about Sophia. You know what I mean? I, I love everything about this girl. And the biggest thing I love more than anything, I've not just made a difference in her tennis game, which to me is the easier part. Uh, me and my good friends with Edge International, the management company that represents her, and you know I represent her personally, uh, we've changed someone's life. Because you see the catastrophic insanity that's going on in Ukraine. She could be one of the casualties. You know, we, we, I not only have changed her game so much and her mindset, I've just changed someone's life and the mother and the brother. You know, thanks to my good friends at Edge, we represent her and I represent her personally. But listen, it's, a, it's the best feeling in the world and probably one of the best feelings, uh, and I've had a lot of in my career, uh, but this takes it to another level just because of what's going on over there um, and to give her a different set of eyes to look at life and to follow her dream. And for me to be able to be a part of this, you know, and take this further besides maybe help this girl become number one in the world. Okay. Which it would have never happened if she was there and it probably would have never happened unless our paths would have crossed. Uh, it's probably the best feeling I've ever had. That's amazing to hear. I actually only have one more question because I know you need to eat as well because you're always on the tennis court and you're always burning for, for more tennis and bringing more of yeah. Rick Macy magic to tennis. Breakpoint, uh, now it's out season two and some of the things we talked about today talked, we, were you know touched in that series. Have you seen it and do you think it's like a good marketing tool for, for tennis in general? Um, I've only seen some highlights. I really don't have the time you know, to sit down and, and watch that. I actually see it day to day, you know, in my in my regular life. But no, I think it's a great thing to market. I think when it can connect more people, uh, it's available on, you know, online, different platforms. One more thing. Let me comment on this, because a lot of people have been asking me about the commentating with AI at Wimbledon. Yeah, OK. Yeah. And, you know, it, about humans and robots and all this stuff. Listen, it, it's going to be used on video and the highlights. Okay. And I think people need to give it a shot. I think they need to just see how it's all going to work out. I think the nuances, the subtleties, the attention to detail that it's going to show people. Okay. And maybe some people don't want all that information, but I think it's going to engage more people. I think people will be going on and off their phones, looking at this stuff. Listen, at the end of the day, I think it's a positive. It's not going to do really the the, the live courts, that's going to be so humans. But I think it's going to, all the outer courts, wheelchairs, seniors and juniors, people are going to have access to, and they're going to have the voiceover, okay, of a bot 
I think it will be great to give that analysis. I think everybody loved it except John McEnroe because he said, you can't be serious, okay? So I think everybody loved it than him. But at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, I think uh, the bots are going to be calling the shots. That's a great, uh, great quote, actually. No, I agree. I think also we, you know, we need to embrace new technology where possible and anything that can bring more information, more enjoyment, more engagement to the audience, we, we should at least yeah. give it a try, right? Like we shouldn't just uh, brush it off. Yeah, they'll synthesize the voice. You know, they'll have a smooth, silky delivery. It's not going to be like a robot. I don't, it's not, they'll, they'll work it out. It's going to take time. You know what I'm saying? So when it's all said and done, I think it's a win-win for everybody. But even the networks, because it's always what's behind the curtain. For the networks, they're going to save tens of millions of dollars, okay, just on that alone, okay, because they're going to have AI commentating. Then they're going to get tens of thousands of more people involved, and then they're going to make tens of millions of more dollars for more advertisement. So they're going to have the trifecta. So behind the curtain, this train has left the station. Uh, and there's no looking back. But initially, I'm sure it'll be like a hybrid on down the road, a human uh, and AI. Yeah, and it's a great experiment and it will be fun to watch. And I, I like when tennis is also trying yeah. to be a little bit in the forefront or at least be with the times because uh, sometimes it's, a, it's an old sport, traditional sport. Not many rule changes over the last you know 100 years, really, if you look at it. Uh, so it's nice that it does embrace uh, new technology and new, you know, new ideas. Uh, Absolutely, going they've already they've already used this uh, in the World Cup, NBA Finals, the Masters, you know. And so I've kind of looked at some of this stuff. It, it's intriguing. I mean, for me and you, who have more depth about kind of what's going on, you know, with all these subtleties with tennis. But for the average person, I think they're going to get. If you want information, it's going to be information on steroids. I know you're a busy man, so I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I love talking to you. Talking tennis uh, with Rick Mace is, is, um, is a gift, so I really enjoy it. I appreciate your time because I know how busy you are. And whenever you want to jump on again, uh, we do it again happily. We'll definitely do it again.